belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for February 5th, 2023 is called, Let's Go on an Adventure. The speaker is Betty Wilton and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Doing good? Do we all survive the snow and the ice? It is so good to be gathered this morning. Welcome to all of those on the live stream and on the podcast. Um, my name is Betty Wilton, and I am just really happy to be out of the house. I was really starting to get some cabin fever this week, so being gathered together feels really good. Okay, so as we get started, how many of us have seen Lord of the Rings? Okay, good. So let's start with some trivia. So this classic tales focuses on four young hobbits. Who were they? Can you name them? Sam. Yes. Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. Okay, so the book starts with these little guys living fairly unassuming lives, just rooted in their small community, working regular menial jobs, just chilling, Mary and Pippin getting up to all of their mischief here and there. And then after a series of rather unfortunate events, these young, somewhat naive hobbits are invited on an epic journey. Knowing the stories of the past, they start somewhat excitedly on this journey, knowing that hope is in their reaches. And there's kind of this thought that this adventure may bring glory, fortune, and fame. And they're ready to see where this adventure will take them. But little do they know, this adventure would be much different than they expected. Far less breakfasts than they had hoped. Um, so I like to imagine their first four disciples as hobbits. Um, I'll admit the analogy breaks down eventually. But like hobbits, they're just kind of going about their normal lives when this kind of mysterious traveling rabbi comes into their sleepy little village and invites them on an adventure. I think that these biblical hobbits, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, were eager for an adventure. I think they were eager for an adventure that they expected might bring some glory and power. But we also soon find out that this would be an adventure that had much, much more in store for them than they originally expected. So this morning, we're going to look at the expectations the disciples and we carry as we enter this adventure of following Jesus, and then see how Jesus challenges our expectations. So our scripture this morning is set in Galilee, a small town in the north. The Israelites are living under Roman persecution, still displaced from their homeland, living as the diaspora from the exile. And their hope is set on this future promise given by the prophets centuries ago, longing to be restored to their former glory. But in the meantime, they're just kind of doing what they need to to survive. And so we start in verse 14 with John the Baptist, the man who started this whole story of Mark, preparing the way for Jesus in the wilderness, calling people to repent and baptizing them, even baptizing Jesus, pretty important guy. Well, he's in prison, so we kind of see this trouble starting to brew. The one who they thought was this new Elijah, who was, but is starting this big movement in the wilderness, and and now he's in prison. This present reality is starting to look a bit rocky and a little less hopeful. 
Imagine the feeling of all of the kingdoms in Lord of the Rings when the ring is found and they know that something's about to happen, right? Realizing that there's this chaos on the horizon and there's a lot at stake. So then we see Jesus in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God in the midst of this looming chaos. Like John the Baptist, Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, a teacher. Rabbis in this time were quite prestigious. They were the experts in the law and the stories of Israel. They had this high social staff status within their um, within Israel and or among the Israelites, and spent most of their time in the synagogues in Jerusalem with chosen people studying under them. But Jesus is a bit different. He travels around teaching crowds like John the Baptist, teaching a subversive message. And so Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And now just to clarify, in this scene, Jesus is not standing on the street, handing out gospel tracts with a big sign that says repent and maybe a bullhorn. It's not what he is preaching here, okay? So when we think about the gospel being preached in our context, right, we hear, we kind of expect to hear about we're sinners, Jesus died for our sins, we need to let him into our heart, and then we'll be forgiven. That's the gospel we expect to hear but that's not what these people were hearing or were expecting to hear when Jesus proclaims the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. When he says the time is fulfilled, the word time is not like, hey, it's noon, time for lunch kind of time. The Greek word used here is kairos, which is a significant time. It's a moment of truth. A kairos moment divides past from present and ushers us into a new kind of life. It's often described as God's time. So Jesus is proclaiming a good news that is both rooted in the past in Israel's story, but is also a new present reality and a future hope. So when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near, people's ears kind of start to perk up, right? They recognize this promise. The buzzword here is kingdom. This is good news. Jesus is bringing the past promises of Israel's scriptures into this present reality. The promises of the prophets are finally going to be fulfilled, and their expectations were clear. We're going to be restored again and in power once again. We'll be a great kingdom again. Think of Israel during the reign of King David or King Solomon, right? They had wealth, influence, and might. This sounds like good news for a dislocated people who were currently living under an oppressive regime. So this vision, their vision of the kingdom of God was largely political and social. It was very Lord of the Rings battle scene-esque. And it had more to do with their military might than returning to the heart of God. And so this expectation that they had for the kingdom was going to have to be confronted and unlearned as they began to follow Jesus. Because what they believe about what was being promised in the future informs how they were going to live in their present. So if God's kingdom, right, is going to be this Lord of the Rings battle, this big culmination, then the most important present task for them would be to kind of start getting ready for war, right, to start battling. So then following Jesus would mean fighting anyone that doesn't want Israel to be this great kingdom again. And their expectation for what the kingdom of God was kind of became interchangeable with their expectation and their hope for the kingdom of Israel. 
But if we step back and we look at the whole story, we see that Jesus is proclaiming not that, but that the kingdom of God is not about a political return to power. God's kingdom is about God's intention for humanity that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. For God to be their king, for God to be present with his creation, and to restore harmony in all of creation. It's to restore the world to shalom. And so if we have this vision, right, of the kingdom, this vision of harmony and restoration, and that is our end goal, of the king dwelling with his people in a kingdom that's defined by wholeness, then how we live in our present reality needs to work towards that. So we start with this big vision, right? This gospel that Jesus begins his ministry with is one that is both cosmic but also tangible. It's offering real evidence of God's presence for Jesus' first audience and for our own today. Because the kingdom of God runs parallel to God's presence. I mean, how can there be a kingdom with no king, right? This kingdom of God is not breaking into their reality with God in a distant realm, but by being present, by being with these people and teaching them. God has come to be present with his people. But he doesn't say that this kingdom is just a task for him. Rather, we see Jesus starting his ministry by calling people to join him on a journey. That is God's way. It always has been. There's this pattern throughout the entire story of God's presence being with those that he's called. God always works with humans to bring about his mission. And so we see Jesus walking along the shoreline, and he sees these two fishermen, Simon and Andrew. There's a parallel story in Luke 5 that kind of gives us a few more details about where they're at on their fishing journey, and they are not having a successful time. No fish to speak of. So they're probably feeling pretty stressed and exhausted because fishing in this time was not go out with your rod with your friends on the weekend and just go hang by the water kind of thing. Picture more like the deadliest catch in the ancient world and on a lake. It's more like that. Um, you know, they're continuously pulling in and out these giant nets from spot to spot just trying to get fish. Their livelihoods depend on how many fish they can bring in. So coming home empty-handed is not inconsequential. So while they've been wrestling with this fear of not having enough, of navigating these unpredictable waters, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God breaking into their present. And then Jesus calls out to them, follow me and I will turn you into fishers of people. When I read this, I really do imagine Simon and Andrew as hobbits. This rabbi with a bit of a following and reputation is talking to them. It's kind of exciting, right? When Jesus set calls out to them, follow me, they get excited. They leave their nets immediately and follow him. And also in Luke 5, we read this story a bit differently. When Jesus sees them, he performs a miracle, right? Where they say, we don't have any fish. And he says, cast it over here, and then they do. And then there's this like abundance of fish. Their boats are starting to sink, their nets are breaking because of how much fish that they're catching under Jesus's instruction. And then after that miracle, Jesus asks them to follow him. Because to me, 
And I, I just think it's interesting that Mark doesn't include that bit because to me, the disciples seem even more like hobbits in Luke's version. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I can just see Mary and Pippin just looking at this abundance of fish, like just having a field day. So excited, right? So excited that this rabbi is performing a miracle, that their fear of leaving empty-handed is gone. Of course they would follow him. They had just witnessed the kingdom of God breaking into their reality, breaking their boats, literally. So this rabbi has power. This adventure is going to be awesome. Heck yeah, I'm coming with you, right? But then in Mark's version, there's a different focus. Mark focuses on Jesus's invitation and their response. Simon and Andrew were fishermen without any fish. These two guys who scholars think are probably in their early to mid-20s, not high in social stature or from a prominent town, are now being called by Jesus, a rabbi, to follow him. And then Jesus invites more people to join. The next verses tell us that two more young fishermen, James and John, who scholars think are teenagers, join them after Jesus called out to them. There were no prerequisites or resumes handed in, no questions about their knowledge of scripture, no, Jesus just calls them in the midst of their daily lives, doing their menial work, and says, follow me, I will make you fishers of people. And notice how he still calls them fishers. Already Jesus is challenging expectations. This rabbi is seeking out students instead of having people apply to study under him, and then choosing four young fishermen. He's already raising eyebrows because that future that people were seeing, right, this great return to power and might surely could not be accomplished with four young fishermen from Galilee. I believe that Mark focuses here, though, because this is part of the good news. The kingdom of God is near, and God wants it to come about with the help of ordinary people. This is the epiphany of discipleship. Jesus initiates this relationship. He comes to us and says, join me. Come and learn from me about God's mission and help me bring it into this present reality. It isn't coercive. There are no special requirements. And this is how God has worked time and time before. And it's how God continues to work. God's kingdom isn't ordered in the same way that worldly kingdoms are. Jesus begins his ministry by turning expectations of what this kingdom will be on their head. He begins with an open invitation to come and be with him, to witness what the kingdom is like. Jesus calls out these tired, ordinary young fishermen, and he invites them to be co-laborers, friends, and students. It doesn't matter what the expectations they first had were, because when they followed Jesus, because when they choose to be present with Jesus, they start learning from Jesus. When we're with Jesus and join in this community of other disciples, we start to unlearn our preconceived notions of what this future is supposed to be and submit to God's vision. Like these first disciples, I think we also have our own expectations and presuppositions about what this following Jesus adventure will look like. Our worldviews and cultures and theologies and the stories of our pasts have given us all kinds of expectations of what it will look like to follow Jesus. 
And while there's very many expectations that we bring, there's two that I'd like to focus on challenging today. The first is that we sometimes start to believe that following Jesus is reserved only for the sacred and religious parts of our lives. But we must understand that our call to follow Jesus is not reserved for what we considered sacred work. Following Jesus involves the fullness of our lives, asking God how we can participate in the kingdom of God in every part of our lives. Okay, so how many of y'all have ever had people tell you or maybe had this feeling yourself or been asked um, if God has a call for you? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Um, Let me be clear. I'm not trying to undermine or dismiss those experiences at all. In fact, this question has plagued me for a long time, and I think it plagues a lot of us, right? Have we ever felt called by God? What is God's call on your life? Depending on your tradition, being called by God is is a pretty special thing and generally correlates to some type of religious work. Whether that's being a missionary overseas, becoming a pastor, an evangelist, etc. There's a lot more examples. But a lot of us were explicitly and sometimes implicitly taught that work in ministry, doing church work, is the only work that matters in light of God's mission, in light of eternity. This has been valued for so long because our expectation when we hear the gospel is that God only cares about our souls. The vision that we see when we hear the gospel is our souls in heaven, you know, the big fluffy white clouds. And it's not this holistically renewed world. And I think we got here by letting the chaos and hopelessness that we were seeing around us in our world overtake us. And in the process, we lost Jesus' teaching about how the kingdom is breaking into our present reality, into our whole reality. And so then this message started to creep into our theology that if we want our life to matter to Jesus and to the kingdom in light of eternity, we have to be dedicated to saving souls because all other work is wasted. This world, because this world is beyond saving. So when we're asked what we've been called to or hear stories of God calling people to often very specific and very religious things, um, and we don't work in overtly religious spaces, it kind of brings something up in us. We start to ask, is what I'm doing worthy? Is it enough? Is it meaningful? Because if God's mission can only come about by working in this religious realm, saving souls, then how can, why does it matter if I'm, how I'm filling up this cup of coffee as a barista? Why does it matter that I'm a stay-at-home mom or a realtor? What meaning does any non-religious activity have? When we start to operate out of this expectation, our expectation for following Jesus starts to narrow. We don't expect it to include our day-to-day tasks or our ordinary lives because they're separate from God's mission. It's not a matter of souls. We start to believe that discipleship only happens on Sunday mornings here or when we're doing service projects or mission work or sharing the gospel at work or at the bare minimum supporting those financially, financially supporting those doing the real work, right? This expectation can leave us paralyzed and hinder us 
from realizing that God can and wants to use us as we are now to bring forth his kingdom. And then the second expectation I would like to challenge is that we often feel like we single-handedly are supposed to change the world all on our own. But we must understand our call to follow Jesus is not a call to single-handedly change the world into this kingdom of God. Following Jesus requires us to submit to God's timing and to give him the power and join others in this work. Okay, so how many of us have been asked how you are going to change the world or have ever maybe felt this huge pressure that your life needs to have a major impact on the world? The whole, leave this world better than you found it. Anybody? Yeah. I have to be honest, I wrestle with this so much. It gives me a lot of anxiety sometimes and a lot of hope other times. But I have felt this pressure forever, and it just really starts to eat me up. You know, and I think that there's this tension in our culture that kind of ebbs and flows from this really optimistic, I can change the world. Like, I, I can do it. I've got it. And then this anxious, like, I have to change the world. Like, there's so much, and I have to change it, right? And many of us grew up facing a lot of really big catastrophes, catastrophic events, and then have this ever-looming potential for more catastrophes on the horizon. And so then we're also all bombarded constantly with news of more injustice and pain in the world. And it's so easy to get lost in the doom scroll of news. Um, and then it just kind of starts to consume our days and to feel like this overwhelming pressure that we have to fix it. It's exhausting. And it absolutely has changed, has shaped the way that we understand what it means to follow Jesus. When we hear the gospel, we kind of start to think like the Israelites did. We're constantly on guard, trying to fight against the injustice and violence of the world putting more and more pressure on ourselves to have this lasting impact on the world. And we have this promise, right? It's a promised kingdom. It's coming. It's happening. If I can just convince the world and defeat those who are causing all the pain, it will come. I can make it happen. And so we start to think that following Jesus means that we have to change the world. We have to address, confront, and solve all of the world's problems. And it's up to us. But the outcome of that is that real, meaningful participation in God's mission is then reserved really only for those who become these crusaders pursuing lasting social change. And they become the ones that God uses. They are the ones, their work is the thing that matters solely to God. And the results are similar to the first expectation. What about everybody else, right? Does pulling teeth, teaching music to kids, changing the oil in the car really matter to God? What happens when our daily lives, the things that we're doing, aren't making changes on a global scale? And then when we, when we also say change the world, what does that really mean, right? I think we can see very clearly that people who follow Jesus can and do have very different ideas of what this future changed world is supposed to look like and what it should look like. Sky Jathani wrote a book called Futureville, all about vocation and discipleship, and it's informed a lot of my theology around this topic. They talk about how when we want our version of the changed world, and when we're fighting against other people who have different ideas of what that will look like, 
what ends up happening is that shaping and controlling the future becomes our mission because we're tempted to believe that if we control the levers of power, then we can steer the culture in the direction that God wants. Because wouldn't God rather have us in control of these levers than our enemies? With more power, we tell ourselves, we can muscle our agenda into existence and force others to submit to our version of the future. When we start operating out of this expectation, our expectation of following Jesus narrows. All that matters is the fight and winning against those that we are calling our enemies. We start spending less time learning from Jesus and being with Jesus, and we get caught up fighting with people who have different ideas of what that future should look like. And then we can easily begin to devalue our fellow image bearers. We start to break relationships and increase division, and we're tempted to grab power and control at the expense of others. We start to think that it's all about what we can do rather than relying on the grace of God. But I would like to suggest that Jesus challenges all of these expectations. Just like the disciples and the crowds, we all begin our journeys with a lot of expectations when Jesus calls us to follow him. It's not bad. It's human. It's how it, it's how it is. But let's go back and reimagine what it means to be called to follow Jesus in light of this story this morning. Let's remember what the good news Jesus proclaimed is. First, it's that God is here now, bringing God's kingdom into the present reality. It's not our kingdom. We get to partake, but we are not the kings and queens. The power is not ours. Following Jesus requires us to submit to God's timing and to give him the power. And that doesn't mean that we're lacking or unsafe. Giving up power is really hard for me, and I do not like it. But Jesus invites us and says, come and learn from me about God's mission by being with me, and then help me bring it into your present reality. We're not powerless. We're just not the ultimate power. It's scary to let go of control, but God has also shown us through time and space, through all of these stories, that he's a trustworthy God, a God who cares about our whole beings, about our emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, social selves. And secondly, God's kingdom is not just coming into the hearts of the people, but also into their tangible present reality. Jesus' ministry is defined by his tangible actions, ordinary and extraordinary, doing miracles, being hospitable, subverting social structures, communing with those on the margins, and more. And all of it is evidence of God's mission transforming the world that he cares about, and that he cares about, again, our whole lives, not just our souls. God is changing the world holistically. But thirdly, God chooses not to do this alone, right? Because what does Jesus do after he proclaims the gospel? What happens next? He goes and calls four ordinary people to join him on this mission. Immediately after, when he calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John, our biblical hobbits, he shows us that this kingdom isn't reserved for those that the culture says are special or more religious or have more social stature. Instead, Jesus shows us that all we need to start participating in the kingdom of God 
is to simply come and be with Jesus, to follow him. Because when we choose to be present with God, we begin to understand what, what God's mission is. When we're with Jesus and join in this community of other disciples, we can start to unlearn our preconceived notions and confront our expectations of what this future is supposed to be and submit to God's vision. This journey of, un journey of learning and unlearning can be daunting, but we're not alone in this journey. After these four biblical hobbits start following Jesus, Mark tells us story after story of them reverting back to their expectations of how this whole kingdom of God should look. But each time, Jesus corrects them and brings them back into walking in step with God's vision because God is, gracious, is a gracious and loving teacher. Choosing to follow Jesus is to begin this never-ending journey of learning from God about how to bring God's kingdom into reality. When we're with Jesus, we're empowered to be co-laborers with him by living our lives with the intention of bringing beauty, order, and abundance alongside our community of fellow disciples. Okay, so if I may unironically bring up WWJD for a second, can we just all say it together? What would Jesus do? Yes, okay. Okay, so as overused and, you know, cliche as that saying is now, um, I do think it's really helpful because when we realize that we're all called to be Jesus's disciples, that there's no special calling that makes one more valuable or a better candidate, then we can truly follow Jesus in all parts of our lives as our authentic selves. God invites us to consider our personalities, our context, and our experiences. And then out of who we are, where we are, with what we have, discerningly participate in what he's already doing. Each day, Jesus invites us to learn from him and to join him in bringing beauty, order, and abundance. Asking ourselves and learning, what would Jesus do? in the ordinary parts of our lives. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up and those serving communion. So ultimately, this story shows us that we're first and foremost called to God, to follow him and be in relationship with him, letting God transform our hearts and minds to see the world around us as God does, looking for how the kingdom is breaking in and how we can help it come about. The priority is that we build our lives around this communion with God and with other disciples. It's out of this place of relationship together that we learn how to live our daily lives as Jesus would. And that's why we come to the table each Sunday. At the table, we remind ourselves that we're on this journey together. Here we remind ourselves of the hope ahead and how the kingdom is breaking into our present reality. Now, some of us might be coming to this table with stories of how we've seen this coming about, stories of how we've seen this kingdom breaking in, how we've seen Jesus still at work bringing beauty, order, and abundance. And some of us may be coming and feeling overwhelmed by the chaos of the world and need more than anything to be reminded of this vision and hear stories, because these are the things that are nourishment for the journey ahead. 
Whatever it is that you bring or need this morning, you're welcome to commune with us and Jesus at this table. Come and receive the grace that God has for each of us as we journey together with Jesus. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.